You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we are here with Ms. Tabitha Griffith, who is the Deputy Executive Director of Kenya Legal and Ethical Issues Network. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dominic, for having me. So we are going to be talking about um, reproductive rights today. So could you tell us a bit more about you and your work <laughs> in the general area? All right. Okay. So Dominic, my name is uh, Sawayo Tabitha Griffith. I am Kenyan uh, by nationality. I am a lawyer by profession and uh, an, a proud alumna of uh, the University of Pretoria Centre for Human Rights, LLM, class of 2012. In my organisation where I work, which is Kellin, we work primarily to promote and protect health-related rights. And my special bias is on sexual and reproductive rights because this is what I have done personally for the last eight years. Uh, we work on a variety of issues, and uh, these are issues to do with um, detention of women in hospitals. We work on sexual and gender-based violence. We work on issues to do with access to safe abortion, and we also work on issues to do with uh, forced sterilization of women. The abortion is obviously quite a well-known topic, but could you explain a bit more about this forced sterilization you mentioned? Because what exactly is this? Well, so um, forced and coerced sterilization of women, especially in Africa, is a very little known uh, subject matter because of the fact that a lot of women who have been forcefully sterilized, especially women who are either living with a disability or women who are living with HIV, it's something that many women are not proud of and uh, many women are quite scared to come out and talk about it because of the stigma that is associated with the inability to have children. So what we have realized over the years as we did our research from around um, 2010 is that women were painfully bearing a secret that they had been forcefully sterilized or they had been coerced to be sterilized, particularly women living with HIV in Kenya. And many of them were suffering in silence and they were not ready to tell their partners about it. They obviously were struggling to have children. Their partners thought that this was perhaps one of the you know, difficulties of having children, but they knew exactly what the problem was, that they just couldn't have children but they were not ready to tell their partners. So around 2010, um, an organization known as Africa Gender Media Trust began a journey of documenting women who would voluntarily come to them to tell them that, look, I have a story, and this is the story of how I was forced to be sterilized by X, Y, and Z. In Kenya's case, uh, we have Pumwani Maternity Hospital, which is uh, at that time was a, um, a referral maternity hospital based in Nairobi. We have Medicine Sans Frontier, and we had Mari Stops, as well as a hospital known as Marura Nursing Home, as some of the you know hospitals that had been mentioned adversely in the cases that we have currently in court. So. What happened is that from the narratives of the women that we have, women would tell us that um, 
all the women, the common factor being that they're living with HIV. And some of the women, their narratives are that they went into a hospital and when they went into the hospital, um, they would go in and a recommendation would be made for them to have a cesarean section because of their HIV status. And the doctors would get creative um, once the consent had been given to have the cesarean section and they would uh, as well sterilize these women during the cesarean section. We also have a woman whose narrative is that um, she gave birth to twins. And after she gave birth to the twins, uh, when she went back to get uh, formula milk because she had opted to not to lactate the children, but to give them formula milk because she was very scared that she would infect them with HIV. Um, the nurses at the hospital would tell her, we need proof that you have been sterilized before we share with you the formula milk. The realities on the ground, Dominique, is that a tin of formula milk costs around $13 to $15 in Kenya. If you have a set of twins who are consuming perhaps two tins every week, you're going to get desperate. Now, the kind of women that we're speaking of are not um, average middle-income women. These are HIV-positive women who came from the slum settings and who barely read or write. They can barely read or write. So when you look at the intersectionality of all the things that were to their disadvantage, that this is a woman who had no capacity to complain because she cannot read or write. This is a woman who is working and earning uh, about $2 per day because most of these women, their profession is to wash clothes or they are, um, you know, th there's a woman who sells ice cream, like the lollipop sticks, and she earns about 100 Kenya shillings, which is an equivalent of a dollar. So if you look at the, you know, dynamics, she was obviously going to opt for the sterilization, but it wasn't a choice that was made with informed you know, consent, but one that she was coerced into. So the formula milk was always the, you know, the carrot that was dangling, and most of them opted to just get the sterilization in order to save the lives of their babies. So you've mentioned informed consent, and just listening to your stories, it's sometimes hard to imagine that this happens if they've got access to medical care how is it not the right one how are we dealing with informed consents what are the parts that are missing and how do you deal with this in a hospital setting if you go there you're expecting healthcare. and if you were saying sometimes they were having c-sections and not being told mm -hmm. what actual rights are being violated? as you said not many people mm -hmm. would know so could yeah. you explain a bit more what are these rights how does it work mm -hmm. Right. What is inform what does informed consent look like in such a situation? So, um, here's the easiest and quickest formula uh, of understanding informed consent. So, or rather, just understanding what consent the five components of uh, consent are. And for me, it's always the formula is fries. Fries as in chips. Fries. F R I E S. F stands for that consent must always be freely given. All right, so the F is freely given, meaning that I do not have to feel pressure to give my consent. I do not have to feel that if I don't make this, I'm standing between a rock and a hard place. It has to be very freely and willingly given. 
in the cases of the sterilized women that we have, most of them never gave their consent freely because some of them, in fact, didn't even give their consent. They gave consent for cesarean section, they didn't give consent for the, you know, sterilization to happen. And if they did, some of them gave the consent out of coercion because the carrot that was being dangled was you've got to get the formula. Now, the second thing is R, which stands for reversible. All right, consent is reversible at any point during a conversation. And this one, we also apply it even to sexual violence. You can reverse your consent. Women need to understand that when you say yes, you can change your mind and it is okay to change your mind. You may have signed on to um, a, a consent form to get a cesarean section and you say, you know what, I want to push. Or you may have uh, decided that you want to have you know, sexual relations with someone and right in the, you know, just before you have it, you can reverse that consent and say no. So consent must be reversible and should be reversible. The I means informed. So consent is not just yes or no, but it is the duty of the doctor to give you all the possible side effects, all the possible information, and then you make that choice based on all this information. Many women, even those who are being coerced, were being told that this is a form of contraception. Nobody ever told them that it is a permanent, 99.9% .9 permanent form of contraception, that it is not one that you can be able to have children after that. So they made this decision without all the accurate information as to the risks, as to the side effects, as to what else comes with this package. So information and consent must be informed. The E stands for enthusiastic. So every so sort of consent that you give, there must be excitement. And I always tell um, you know, participants when we're having sessions that even for sexual relations, when a man has sexual relations with a girl who has just blacked out and because he bought her alcohol and he says, well, I bought the alcohol, now she has to pay for it. There's no excitement, there's no enthusiasm. So the E stands for enthusiasm. When you're giving this consent, there's excitement. You're actually excited at the prospects of what the you know, medical procedure is going to be. And the S stands for specific. Consent must always be very specific. I am consenting to have my hair cut short, not for my entire head to be bald. I am consenting to cesarean section, not for cesarean section and tubal ligation. So consent must be freely given, it must be informed, it can be reversible, it must be enthusiastic, and it is specific for one action and not consent for you to do everything and anything under the sun. So these are the things that are often missing when we discuss, um, you know, consent. You've mentioned there's a duty of the doctor mm -hmm. to give informed or the correct information. Mm -hmm. And it has to be to the woman Mm -hmm. So how does this work? Can a spouse consent on your behalf? How do you ensure doctors are giving you the information? How do you work with them to do this? Because it sounds to me like you're also saying it's specific types of women, mm -hmm. which brings up whole different challenges when you're looking at just general kind of reproductive issues and women's health. Mm -hmm. So how do you address this? So here's the thing, let me start with uh, spousal consent, something that I am personally against because I believe that ultimately 
my body my choice and as much as I would like perhaps to consult with my spouse uh, personally I I am of firm belief that ultimately the decision maker should be the person who suffers and the person who whose body is going to get something different or or someone who's gonna be on the receiving end of that you know cesarean section or whatever um Spousal consent for me should be the last resort where perhaps it is an emergency and the woman is not able to make that decision because she's 99% unconscious or even 100% unconscious. Tubal ligation is not an emergency. That's the thing. You have women, we have five cases of women who walked into hospitals conscious, 100% fully capable of making decisions, but a doctor who assumed incapacity on their behalf and assumed that they're just not intelligent enough to make this decision, that I must make the decision on their behalf. And this is what aches me as a, as a lawyer, as a human rights advocate and as a woman and as a mother. The fact that someone else wants to make that decision on your behalf is what we want to address, and this is what we've been challenging in court with the current cases that we have, which is Petition 606 and Petition 605 of 2014. So as it is, one of the things that we make an argument on is that sterilization or tubal ligation is not an emergency. The kind of information that a doctor owes a duty to a patient is to tell them that, look, um, we think that you have seven children. We are concerned about the spacing of the seven children. We have taken a test of your viral load. We are looking at the fact that you have a disability that makes it extremely difficult for you to take care of these seven children. We are looking at the fact that you're HIV positive and your immunity has gone extremely low, ETC. And then ask the woman and tell her that these are the choices that I'm going to offer you. I can put you on family planning, uh, a contraception a method such as a pill or an injection or an interuterine device, and this should be able to help you space the children. Or alternatively, um, another option that I can give you as a doctor is that when we go into theater, we could also, you know, uh, do tubal ligation, which is permanently, you know, tie your tubes such that you are incapable of having any more children. These are the side effects. These are the possible repercussions. This is all the information that you need. Do you have any questions for me? So a doctor should be able to do that before they make the decision. But what we're seeing in practice, and this was across Namibia, South Africa, Lesotho, Uganda, and Kenya, where the you know, stories of forced sterilization and coerced sterilization have been documented, is that it was either a doctor who made a decision without consulting the patient, or a spouse who was never given information and asked to sign, or a woman who, at the point of laboring, was asked to sign a bunch of forms with the little minimal terms and conditions apply, and they were illiterate and did not know what they were signing to. So those are the cases that we have. We have women who were asked to sign uh, their consent forms 30 minutes before going into theater. And this is at the critical point when she has already started laboring. If I am to demonstrate and tell women out there and anyone who identifies with the pain 
of contractions, you cannot make any informed decision at that point when you are in labor. So this is what we're trying to fight against. Decisions that are hurriedly being made by doctors who are not giving you ample time to think through what the consequences would be. And these are life-changing consequences. Usually people would trust doctors. And what you're saying to me is it sounds like doctors are making choices on their own and women's choices are just relegated to the side. And you're also saying sometimes they're not even giving the spouse the information. Mm-hmm. How does this work? Because normally you go a doctor, you trust a doctor's opinion, they understand the medical reasons. So what is, what is the actual issue here that what a doctor thinks is in your best interest? Why, why can we challenge this? I mean, I understand what you're saying, you know, there's no consent and everything like this, and we need to control that. You can't have everyone just overtaking patients' consent on things. How has this been allowed to go on? Why, why has no one challenged this? And you're saying you've got cases. Is it just because women don't know they have these rights? So here's the thing. Um, number one, in an African context, as I said, one of the things that we have is women who are either misinformed or or do not even have the information. One of the women that we have in our cases attempted to have children three years in a row and she couldn't get children and she couldn't understand why this was happening. And one day there was a free fertility clinic that was in the slums and she went for it and the, you know, the obstetrician gynecologist asked her, but why are you trying to have children when you've, you know, been sterilized? And that is when she knew that she had been sterilized. Now, women, again, are not empowered enough because of societal stigma to come out and actually talk about it. I bet you and I bet my life that if we encouraged women to honestly and candidly come out and say, I was sterilized, we would have much more and many more women coming out than the numbers that we recorded. In Kenya, we had 40 women who came out. We suspect that over the years between 1999 and 2009, because this is when we had the height of HIV prevalence and HIV incidences in Kenya, we would perhaps have many more women coming out. In Kenya, the societal stigma that we have around women who are incapable of having children, and this is not in just in Kenya, but an African in the African context, I can perhaps say this with a lot of confidence that we stigmatize women, we label women. In Swahili, we call a woman who cannot have children tasa, meaning incapable of having children, barren. That is what tasa means. So, such women are the last to speak in a community dialogue. Their opinion doesn't matter because they have no children. A husband will marry and become poly, polygamous because of the fact that he says, look, you're not capable of having of giving me children. I need more children. And, I, and he will go and get another one. Violence in the home setting is something that we have you know, reported, have, have it reported, that women who are incapable of having children have undergone violence, physical violence, emotional abuse, threats from their spouses. These are the kinds of things that make it not known because the women would opt not to talk. In terms of succession and inheritance, women's inheritance chunk 
the percentage that they get is always determined by how many children do you have. And this is even in our law. This is the funniest thing. Our law of succession talks about, you know, if there are two households, how many children are in household A? How many children are in household B? So if household A does not have any children, then your chunk of the, you know, property is less because of that. So you can imagine that this is a woman who will stand so many violations as a result of being uh, sterilized. Is reproductive rights then just a matter of protecting women's ability to have kids? Or is it also protecting those women who choose not to? And all the kind of family planning reproductive mm -hmm. rights generally. Because obviously we're focusing here on those women who want to have kids or have had kids and then someone's taken that option away from them. So is that the only aspect or is it a bit more complex? So um, our work and what, if you look at the Maputa protocol, it talks about both sexual and reproductive rights, meaning that we're not just, you know, uh, imposing children on you, but if you don't want to have children, Maputa protocol article 14.2c is one of the most progressive international, at the regional and international platforms to have the courage to talk about abortion, whether medical or surgical. It is ultimately what I believe when we say sexual and reproductive rights, your right to sexual pleasure, things that we never speak about in an African context, because we we perhaps believe that these are bedroom matters that should not be spoken about. And, and even the entitlement of women to, ha to have sexual pleasure, it's about contraception. It's you know, preventing unintended pregnancy. So it's not just about the protection of a woman who wants to have a child, but even that woman who does not want to have a child, there's also protection uh, within the Maputo protocol that she has access to information, she has access to contraception, she has access to safe abortion, things that are related to your sexual rights and not necessarily just reproducing. So it, it's a mix of both. We want to protect you from the unintended pregnancies, but when you do want to have children, we also may want to make sure that the you know society and the medical environment and the legal environment are supportive of non-interference. Ultimately, that's the element that we want to protect, non-interference for whatever decision you want to make. Why is that so important? Is it just for women's autonomy or does it have wider social implications? Wow, that's a really deep question. Let me kind of explain maybe a bit more of the background is because these are only issues that affect women mm -hmm. at the end of the day. This is solely a woman issue. We're not hearing about forced male sterilization. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that if a man can't have kids, you know, his social status declines. Yeah. So when we protect women's sexual and reproductive rights, what are the potential societal benefits that we'll see from this? Mm -hmm. So let me start by making this very fantastic quote that I've always believed in by Professor Mahmoud Fatala, who was uh, previously the chairperson of FIGO. And he once said that women are not dying from causes that cannot be prevented. But women are dying from easily preventable causes. And the only reason they're dying is simply because society has not found it important enough for them to be protected. And 
again, I had a conversation around two weeks ago with uh, my colleagues at work around HIV and unsafe abortion in Kenya and the comparison in terms of the numbers. Now, we lose on average, we have uh, in Kenya around 1.9 million infected people, people living with HIV. On average, the number of people who die as a result of AIDS-related complications uh, could be around an estimate of 10,000 if I was to do an estimate. We have 465,000 women who die annually from complications of unsafe abortion. Dominique, what am I getting at? The benefits that we see from protecting women's rights, particularly sexual and reproductive rights, is huge. When a woman is not dead, when a woman is working, she brings a lot of economic benefit. And this is something that we have done in Kenya through a costing study where we've costed the price of unsafe abortion in Kenya. On average, we are spending 533 million Kenya shillings every year in terms of our public health facilities addressing unsafe abortions after it has happened. We also did a costing study on the price that the society pays for sexual and gender-based violence in Kenya. And the ultimate conversation that we had, or rather the the results from these two studies, shows that, number one, when you have this woman who is healthy, she's able to make decisions because she is informed, she has access to contraception, this woman ultimately contributes to the economy. She's not going to facilities because she doesn't need to. She is not dying. She is not sick. She is not wasting public resources because you have given her, you know, information. You have armed her with um, so much knowledge that she's able to make informed decisions. You have protected her from being sexually violated and therefore she's not being given drugs that could have been given to somebody else. You divert a lot of resources as a country to address issues of sexual and gender-based violence, unsafe abortion, sterilization of women, ETC, and you know domestic violence, things that can easily be prevented and things that would actually save the government so much money. So societal benefits is that when a woman dies, if a woman dies from unsafe abortion and she leaves behind seven children, ultimately what our studies and what research has found is that it is the firstborn child who will take care of that rest. Sadly, it is not the husband who steps up. So what we're talking about is households that are headed by children. We're talking about loss to the you know, economic um, you know, um, well-being of a country. We're talking about a deep, deep, deep-seated uh, problematic issue even in the community. At the end of it all, ultimately, if I was to, you know, if any government official is listening, I would tell them that if you invest in your women, three quarters of the problems that you have and the things that you're doing, which is to me mopping the floor when the tap is still running, would be addressed. Invest in your women. So what I'm hearing is this may technically be a woman issue mm-hmm. in practical terms. Yeah. But the implications are huge for everyone involved. And actually, it is a societal issue. And it's something that, you know, society should be addressing. Finally, I think what I'd like to ask you is, 
maybe in summary, just for anyone listening who maybe doesn't quite know, mm -hmm. just briefly kind of go, what are your basics as a woman that you should be expecting if you go to receive any family planning advice or mm -hmm. in terms of going to hospitals, yeah. if you are pregnant, if you're not pregnant, just kind of a quick thing, just as a basic to kind of maybe bring awareness. All right. So maybe I would say the first right that every woman has is information. You have a right to information from the government because the government should continuously be doing civic education, either through media, social media, what we're now calling the traditional media, the newspapers, ETC, um, community barrazes, government officials themselves, your Ministry of Health, your Ministry of Education, ETC. You have a right to information for whatever reproductive health issue you have, whether it is pregnancy, whether it is unsafe abortion, whether it is sexual violence. You have a right to information. The second right that every woman has is dignity. You have a right to dignity. And that, for me, means that no woman should ever find herself in such a position whereby she is perhaps, let's say, squatting and inserting you know, some Coca-Cola or aloe vera, or she is so desperate to get a safe abortion or to get an abortion that she would go to such levels as drinking detergent. There's no dignity in that. There's no dignity in a woman who is slapped uh, by a medical professional. We have had cases of disrespect and abuse during childbirth where nurses, clinical officers have been so disrespectful to women, shouting at them and asking them, I mean, were, were, were we together when you ha were having sex? So there's no dignity in that. And the courts in Kenya have, in fact, um, last year, a very wonderful decision was made around what type of, what is dignity when you're having your child? It is not you know, crawling on the floor because you're desperate to get a nurse. It is human resource. You have a right to quality care. That is the third thing that I would say. And quality care means that you're not taking expired drugs. We have had instances where family planning contraception has expired in the stores and the, you know, the government has then rolled it out very quickly to say, oh, let's quickly rush to give the women this. You have a, you know, a right to quality care all through and through. For antenatal clinics, you have a right to go for your four to eight antenatal clinics. You have a right to... Uh, quality beddings, you know, quality food during the entire time that you're in a hospital. So these are some of the things that I think women need to know and need to be emboldened about and need to know that these are my rights. I should have information. I should not be slapped by a nurse. I should have quality drugs that are being given to me. I should not be discriminated simply on the basis of the fact that I'm a woman. We have also had instances where remarks have been made or you know, um, are you doing this because you're a woman? Or women, um, you know, you come here and you want to be treated differently. Yes, I should be treated with special care because I am a woman. But that, those are some of the things you, you have. Nobody has a right to discriminate on you because of the basis of your health status. So if you're a woman living with HIV, you deserve just as much respect and just as much dignity from the healthcare provider 
if you're a woman living with a disability, you deserve this exact same quality of care like every other woman. If you're a woman of a different sexual orientation, nothing stops you or nothing is, you know, you're not earmarked that you're different. There's nothing different about you. So what I would say is, you know, quality care, information, right not to be discriminated, you know, and, and right to have a dignified life. Those would be my four quick ones for any woman out there who's listening. Thank you very much. And thank you for explaining and giving us your time today. And for anyone who maybe is challenging or going through challenges in terms of these things, there are organizations out there. And thank you very much. Thank you, Dominique, for having me. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestros, in conversation with Tabitha Griffith. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues.